Hello. Hey, John. Hi, Dan. I like your new Skype avatar. Did I change my Skype avatar? It's instead of you uh, from, I guess, the is it the 90s with your cool glasses? Now it's a photo of you talking into what looks like a Shure SM7B at a oh, desk. Oh, right. I'm like, I'm in, in my avatar. I am podcasting. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like, you know, I felt like a With thumbs up. You're doing a thumbs up too. Sure, because I just love podcasting, uh-huh. right? You know, <laughs> I'm just sense. like, hello, you are calling me on Skype, so presumably we have some kind of podcasting relationship. I want you to see me in action. I love it. I say That's yes. I say I yes. Uh, how's it going out there in Austin, Texas? That was pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty yeah. good. Yeah. 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 Um, well, things in Seattle are shaping up here. Yeah. It started. Uh, it started to rain. It will. Uh, it'll stop briefly in February or March for a week or two, and then start again. And then it will be done in June. So that's our. That's our thing. If you want to move to Seattle, don't. Right. It's, it rains all the time. It's cold and dark and rainy. As you move through Seattle during the day, do you have like a backpack or a, a, a laptop bag or a briefcase that you take along with you for your papers? No. How do you how do you get stuff around with you? you? Just carry it. Yeah, when I was uh, when I was running for office, when I was going in and out of town every day, uh-huh. uh, I carried a little briefcase that had my computer in it. Um, I I didn't not enjoy that, although I had a because it's not natural. I I had this sort of constant anxiety that I was going to leave it somewhere. Sure. But when I was out and kind of cooking around, and I had my jaunty briefcase slung over my shoulder, yeah, I felt like uh, like a jaunty kind of downtown guy. Yeah. But there's, I think, in my whole adult life, there's always been, uh, there's always been some pressure on me to cosplay normal. Okay. And when like, I was young, go ahead. I was going to say, like, sort of. When you say cosplay normal, what what would be your what would be your normal if you weren't cosplaying? Has anyone seen that? I guess cosplay isn't the right word. I guess LARPing? It's, I guess it's role play. Yeah, yeah, LARPing. Um and and I think my idea when I was when I was in my late teens and early 20s was that my normal that or the normal person that I maybe should be yeah should have been is a kind of uh like white dude like rich white dude or um like white privileged dude mm-hmm. right I, I i should have gone to a good college i should have gotten a good job i should be a pillar of the community i should be a uh i should live in the straight world mm. And um, be an art collector, you know, like, right. like that sort of level of performance uh, in the culture that I should that I should have an art collection, that I should have symphony tickets. Right. Um, not not like white privilege, bro. Like I should have a big boat because that's not who I am. Yeah, I should I should be a person that has um, that has a, a big, big library and he's read every one of them. Right. 
and so when I was young, I, I really like had a lot of push and pull with that because there were, there was a side of my family that lived in that world, that mm-hmm. art collection world. And, um, and I hated being at their house. It was so, there was so much tension just in the normal sort of, just in a friendly cocktail party, the tension that's born by those people. Um, I just felt it like a, like an, uh, an, an electromagnetic pulse. Right. You had to reject that. Well, it wasn't, I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't, although I felt that I should because, because frankly, growing up in, in America and the schools that I went to, there wasn't pressure to like have an art collection, but there was a sense of either you succeed or you fail. Mm -hmm. Either you graduate and go to a good college or you go to a less good college. And that's already a kind of failure having, you know, having fallen so far (laughs) to go to a less good college. Yeah. But maybe you can limp through it. There, there, there are examples of people who limped through it and still were fine. But then, oh, if you went to a slightly less, you know, if you're down into the U.S. News and World Report third page of the magazine, um, you know, like, chin up, <laughs> good luck. And that, and that message was sent to me from the time I was little, right? Mm. So, so although I hated being in those rooms, I also felt like I'm talking about the art collection people. I also felt like that's maybe what it is to be a grown up and and to to shirk it is to be a shirker not just you know I I didn't I didn't have that that feeling that I was striking out on my own knowing exactly the kind of world that I wanted to live in and right. and you know fuck you man fuck the man I'm going my own way I'm starting to band. Like I didn't have that <laughs> confidence at all. All of that, all of the confidence I have now is I think a product of, of managing to, managing to succeed, not having this clear picture right. and proving myself correct. Uh, so, when I put a briefcase on and walk downtown, I get a charge out of it for a while, but eventually it just starts to feel like not me. And when I, when I first got into the university of Washington, it was, it was kind of an elaborate path because I didn't go to college right out of high school. Then I got into Gonzaga, uh, a Jesuit school that had a program for underachievers. I went there for a couple of years and they asked me to leave because I was disruptive. Mm. And then I was again out of college and just bumming around. And then I moved to Seattle and I got a job in a bar, but I didn't, I honestly did not feel confident about being a person who worked in a bar and have that and and have a band like that just wasn't I wouldn't have felt like I was like I was doing enough so I enrolled at the community college and I had a great time at the community college it was you know an urban campus 
people from all walks of life and all ages were there trying to get trying to get an education, not mm-hmm. just not just like going because that's what they do or because mom and dad would be mad, but a lot of people going back to school because an education mattered to them. And right, really sure. liked it. And the community college in Washington or in Seattle had a program where it was, you know, it would kind of gateway you into the University of Washington. If you if you made your your bones there, it it provided a path. And the University of Washington was very important to me. It was where my dad went. It was where my uh, my uncle went. Um, and it's a it's a it's routinely in the list of top state schools. I think they say it has the best medical school in the country. It's got a lot of, it's a, it's a big school. It's a big deal in Seattle and it's sure. a big deal every, um, now it's still a state school, uh, which by my high school standards was already like, well, if you're going to a state school, it might as well be the university of Washington or Berkeley. But still it felt like I could salvage some of my preppy ambitions, some of my, my preppy um, aspirations. If I went to the university of Washington, I wasn't going to wear like one of their purple sweatshirts as an old man, but <laughs> like I could, I could, if I could get into the university of Washington, that would be, I would consider that a minor triumph. And so I worked at the community college and I did all my stuff and I, and I, fulfilled all my credits and I had two years of, of school already at Gonzaga that I did well. I did well in those classes and I applied to the UW and my application was rejected. Hmm. Why? Because they had a complicated, you know, they, they come up with a number, right? They put all your classes in your prerequisites, your, um, your like SAT, ACT, that kind of stuff, all that stuff. And what it does, I mean, they have a whole office of people in admissions. And I think the, an admissions officers like are reading essays and I think they do put a lot of thought into it, but they're also taking, I mean, university of Washington has 30,000 applicants or something like that. Every year, I mean, they have to weed somehow. And the process of weeding people out ultimately is that everybody gets a number. And if your number is below a certain line, then you just, it's like, sorry. And I got this rejection and I couldn't understand, you know, I was like, but I did all the stuff. And it's like, yeah, I know, but some people, some people just don't, their number just isn't over the line. And I went and talked to somebody at the admissions office and they're like, yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. You're right on the line, but just, you know, no cigar. And super frustrating, really frustrating, especially when you're a kid and you've sort of been planning it and your parent, you know, your dad had gone there, your uncle had gone there. Now you show up and you're like, I did what I was supposed to do. Yeah. I didn't really screw anything up. Now you're saying no, but you're, it's not like they're saying no, like you're way off. You're way off. They're saying, no, you're right there. You're right there. Yeah. Couldn't you have said, 
make an exception or is there something else I can do right now to get yeah, it? Listen, what do I, what do I have to do right now right. to get over this line? Yeah. And the admissions officer was, was nice to me, you know, and I, I, I thought we had a, we had a rapport, but this is part of their job um, to say no to people. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I was one of thousands of people that didn't get into the university of Washington and I was not anywhere near the top 60% of people that had been trying, Mm -hmm. you know, there were people I'm sure on that list that had been trying to get into the university, university of Washington since they were a freshman in high school and somehow came up short where it really, 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 really was the difference to them. And at the time, it felt very, very much like the difference to me. Um, looking back, it's like having gone to the University of Washington, yes or no, wouldn't really have, it's not, it, it doesn't affect my, it doesn't directly affect my career, although I, I learned a lot there and, and that learning ends up being a big part of how I make my living now. But so in that moment, I had, you know, I'd been pretty pridefully doing this on my own. Like I wasn't asking for help from home. I was putting myself through this community college. I was going to do this and this was going to be my Horatio Alger story. I was going to lift myself up by my bootstraps out of the ashes of of my high school failure (laughs) and was going to be kind of a self-made guy. Mm -hmm. And so I went back to the community college and I took another quarter thinking like, I'll just go, you know, like build up this thing, build, build up my, status so that I get over this number, whatever this number is. Mm -hmm. And it's a small price to pay, you know, and I was living in, in Seattle. I was, I was gadding about, but I, but I enjoyed school and I did well in school. So I went to the community college for another quarter and I got good grades and I reapplied to the university of Washington and I got rejected. Why? I did because my number. Well, John, we need to thank our first sponsor. It's LinkedIn Learning. Now, I think a lot of our audience members are probably familiar with lynda.com. That is what LinkedIn Learning is. They acquired Lynda and now they've got all of their awesome content right in there. This is, this is amazing. Lynda has been the leader in online learning for like 20 years And this is for people who are wanting to solve problems there for people who want to make changes in their career. It doesn't really matter what you want to do. You want to learn something new. The best way to do it, I think, is by watching the videos that they have there. And they've got so many videos. And this is the thing. People who are in their their existing jobs and they want to maybe move up the ladder, they want to get a promotion, they want to learn a new skill, and they're not able to do it on the job. They need to go somewhere else to do it. Well, Go to LinkedIn Learning. A successful entrepreneur, a successful employee, 
you're always learning. That's the thing. That's what keeps things moving. That's what keeps things interesting. And they have courses that will strengthen every aspect of your personal growth of your business, whether it's finance and accounting or tutorials on things like QuickBooks or web development and design. I mean, even Google Analytics, Adobe software, you name it, it's in there. And I learned a lot from the LinkedIn Learning and Linda content. Uh, really, that's how I learned how to edit stuff in, in Logic. And they have so many courses. I just went to uh, LinkedIn Learning and I entered in just Logic Pro. And the, the things that they came back with here are amazing. I mean, they've got vocal production techniques, virtual instruments, uh, electronic music, essential training, audio post workflow. And these are perfect if you're doing music, if you're doing podcasting, you name it. And this is the way it is for every single one of the courses that they have. Tons of great information. All the courses are taught by professionals who really know what they're doing. And they have courses for all experience levels, wide range of skills. If you're just getting started, if you're a pro, you can learn at your own pace. You jump in and, uh, and, and learn one particular skill or sit back and watch the whole course. It's designed to let you get in and out if you want bite-sized segments or just sit there and watch the whole thing and, uh, and learn something from start to finish. And they even have transcripts for every video so you can watch it, you can listen to it, you can read along and there are no hidden charges or anything like that. You get access to all of the courses, the entire library, as much as you want for one monthly price. So go check out linkedin.com slash road and you'll get a 30-day free trial with access to every single video in their library. Watch as much as you want. Enjoy it. Take advantage of those 30 days. And, uh, and then you can sign up and, and learn more. But the URL to go to to support the show and to get started is linkedin.com slash road. Thank you very much, LinkedIn, for making this show possible. I went down and I sat in the person's office and they were like, I mean, you could your number, it's just like... It's a six-digit number, and you're off by one. Um, but that's, you know, that's how the cookie crumbles. And I said, you've got, you've got to be kidding me. Like, um, I have two years of, well, now, like three years of college. Mm-hmm. And I got good grades, and I had great SAT scores. But... For whatever reason, like the, like the math of it, uh, just wasn't penciling out, and I felt very much like I felt a, I felt a real feeling of defeat because it didn't feel like there was like it didn't feel like if I went back to the community college for another quarter or for another year even yeah that it was going to affect this whatever this alchemy was. Um, and at the time I was not really role playing, uh, a straight arrow. I was living kind of living pretty rowdy. Mm-hmm. I wasn't drinking alcohol cause I, because I recognized that that was a problem, although I started drinking again after this period. But there was a brief period in the middle here where, um, where I, I realized like I needed to quit drinking. I didn't quit doing drugs, and that was a very weird. Oh, so you were so you were sober from the alcohol standpoint, but you were still doing drugs. Yeah, so not sober, 
but like I, I recognized that it was, it was alcohol that kept getting me in trouble. You know, like when I woke up somewhere and didn't know where I was, it was because I'd been drinking, not because I was high. Right. And I never got sent. I never got picked up by the cops for being on drugs. You know, like drugs were much more personal and whatever your, whatever your flight was, it was, um, and it wasn't always necessarily peaceful, but it was not that kind of just, uh, bull in a China shop that happened to me when I was on, when I was drinking. So I quit drinking, but I was all messed up. I mean, uh, taking, taking beer out of the equation, I just started doing more drugs, more Mm. and more. Um, so I wasn't like, I wasn't playing it straight. I was just, I was trying to have it all, you know, I was trying to be Joe college. I was trying to be downtown grunge drug addict. I mean, (laughs) the only thing I wasn't trying to be was, was, uh, was a good boyfriend. So I had this, I had this kind of, this awful moment of feeling like sort of like, uh, like a borderline personality person, my emotional state at that point, uh, I couldn't see beyond the, the, uh, the emergency that was right in front of me. And it felt like not getting into the university of Washington. This was my last chance. Yeah. And failing to do it, I was going to be cast into a sea of um, people that were working in rock and roll bars for their career. And that's what I was doing. I was working in rock and roll bars. But I was afraid, you know, I was afraid to to live in, in rock and roll because I didn't have another choice. It was great to live in rock and roll as long as I felt like I could also do other things if it came to it. But I, I felt, and, and this was a lot of that, that, that pressure still from my family that wasn't, it wasn't being applied directly. It was a pressure that came from the way I was raised. Yeah. This feeling of like, you're going to work in a bar. (laughs) Like I, it was, I might as well have said that I was just going to voluntarily put myself in prison (laughs) for, for the amount of like, <laughs> right? No, I understand the degree to which I was disappointing my right parents or squandering my um my patrimony. So the the problem was the vibrating background noise of this whole eighteen month process was that my uncle Cal was on the board of regents of the University of Washington. And I had not mentioned to uncle Cal that I was applying to the university because I, I didn't want there to be, I didn't, you know, I, I wanted this to be my, Horatio Alger moment. I did not want to waltz in, which is in waltzing in is definitely in my family genes. 
my dad waltzed in everywhere he went and my mom's father waltzed in. <laughs> um, and I waltz in and always have, mm-hmm. but I didn't want that to be the case. But here I was having like applied and been rejected twice and I just wasn't that brave or I wasn't, I wasn't brave enough to say, I'm going to go, I'm going to get into the university of Washington. God damn it. By any means possible. Right. Or no, 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 no. That's not true. I'm not, I'm going to get into the university of Washington by my own blood, sweat and tears regardless. And if I don't, I'll die trying like, because I, I didn't have the, I didn't have that confidence. I didn't have the, the feeling, the sure feeling that I could accomplish that through my own toil. Uh, I, I very much lived in a world where, where I, um, uh, a world bounded by insecurity and by a feeling of not measuring up a feeling of like, um, not being, not being, it, it was never that I wasn't intellectually capable, but just not capable somehow. Couldn't throw a football in other words. Right. Couldn't. And if I, if I tried to throw the football, the, a guy from the other team would grab it and then I'd be the goat. Right. And so I was at a party at my uncle's house at where we were standing around like uncomfortably tense <laughs> looking at one another's art collections. And uh, those parties were just, they were holiday parties or, I mean, I would get invited. I'm a, I'm a member of the family, but they didn't want me there. I didn't want to be there. You know, I had, I had logger boots on. Right. Which didn't, it just didn't make any sense to them at all not not as a fashion thing or as an anything like why are you wearing the boots of a work person i'm just like well because of rock bands <laughs> they, there was i mean but but the thing is it would never come to the level of somebody saying something right they wouldn't even come to the level of somebody looking at them strangely it was just that there was a consciousness a constant consciousness of every single microscopic violation of an invisible matrix of rules that even though I was raised in them and knew them all, I couldn't possibly keep them all in my head and, and couldn't live, uh, uh, like, like it, it would be like being a Shibari model. Um, I couldn't live that tide. but I'm at a party. Hey, how's it going there? You know? What have you been up to? Nobody cares. Nobody cares what I've been up to. But I get I get asked. And I say, well, I've been trying to get into the University of Washington. And I know when I say it, what I'm doing. And and I had, you know, and I stood there in the entry hall right. thinking, like, don't, don't, don't do this. Don't betray yourself. 
betray I'm because trying. you'd be maybe asking for help? Yeah. Don't betray yourself. Don't let don't let them have the satisfaction of helping you. Don't deprive yourself of the pleasure or the of the feeling of accomplishment of figuring this out on your own. What have you been doing? Well, I've been trying to get into the University of Washington. Oh, why didn't you tell me? Well, I figured, you know, I've just been taking classes and working on getting into the U. Oh, well, it's good to know. Don't, you know, I'll make a call. Well, I mean, you don't need to do that. Oh, it's no problem. And then, like. I mean, that, are you saying that you feel like because you didn't get in just totally on your own merits that it would, that you'd be betraying yourself somehow? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the next day, I got a phone call from the University of Washington admissions office. And I went down and I walked in. And the person who had been, working on my admissions. Same guy? Same guy with whom I had a, a relationship right. at this point. Came out of his office and then all the other ones, all the other admissions officers that were down that hallway all kind of leaned out of their doors and looked down the hall at me and he kind of like with a wry smile like slow clapped that's weird yeah uh well but but maybe not i mean it was the implication of the slow clap that like all right kid you know like you got me or was it more like oh very nice nice way to uh pull some strings to get yourself in i think all the above i mean what 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 it what that effectively did was communicate to that guy and all of those people working in that admissions office that their process and the meritocracy of university admissions and all of the work that they'd put into reviewing my application and rejecting it doesn't add up to a good goddamn Mm -hmm. if you are a member of the ruling class. Right. Because they didn't get a they didn't get a, a letter from somebody who said, Hey, this kid's got a you know, like his father in law is a professor of economics and we really want you to put a gold star on the top of his application. They didn't get a no, nothing was attached to the file to push me over the the number no nobody nobody called them and said add five numbers to his score they got a phone call from the dean of the college who said let this kid in Hmm. and then i was in and i was a member of the university of washington right um and it was always uh, tainted, colored by that, by the fact that 
that system that rules the, you know, the, the class system that rules the United States and, and everywhere, every country in the world where the, 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 the privileged people maintain a hold over their ownership of the, of the things, but also of access. That was, that was a situ, that was a condition of the world. And I had both the privilege of access and also the privilege to pretend not to need it. Right. You know, to say like, no, 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 I, I'm going to do this on my own, but if that doesn't work, then I'll make a phone call. Like every aspect of it, particularly when I contrasted it against the other world that I was living in, which was a world of people who had left high school halfway through because their home life didn't enable them to continue to attend high school or their drug problems didn't, or they were running and they ended up. Were you, are you saying in, that you felt, are you saying that you felt bad that people who were maybe were in a similar, similar situation as you grade wise didn't have a uncle who could call a Dean to get them into, into school? I, I'm less, I mean, certainly the people that were also like neck and neck with me mm-hmm. and, and didn't have an uncle to call. Yeah. Uh, sure. I feel bad for them. I feel bad for the people that didn't have an uncle to call a thousand steps up that, up that chain. Yeah. I was, I was working and living in an environment of people, none of whom were ever going to go to college who didn't even think that who, who felt that kind of defensive, uh, attitude about college that it was like the whole idea of going to college was some kind of, uh, was access that you needed access even to go to the community college. Mm -hmm. Um, because it required that you believe that going to college benefited you in any way other than making you a slave of the man. Like there are so many levels of, uh, relationship to what it means to go to college. And, and that even those punk rockers who were so contemptuous of college, they were all white kids. Like they, they were fighting against college and against all these ideas purely from a class standpoint, but there wasn't even a racial aspect to it. They didn't have any, they they had a, they had a blue collar cultural suspicion of college, let alone if they had been, you know, kids that were raised in, in, English as a second language communities right. or African Americans, somebody that is that has so many additional stumbling blocks to even be sitting there in the admissions guy's office with their transcript and being told that they have one number too few. Um. So it, I got into the University of Washington, and I felt the burden of this whole. kind of unrighteous walk that I'd made um, that I had not taken school seriously. I hadn't given a fuck 
in high school. I graduated last in my class. I didn't go to college at first. I went half-heartedly and got kicked out. I bummed around. I got some jobs, did some drugs, went to a community college. And then when the when I needed it, I pulled one string and I was sitting in a university context where it would be very easy for me to, to, to say, and part of me did say, this is where I belong. Like this is the environment where I belong. This is the level of intellectual curiosity I have. These are the classes I should be taking and should have access to. This is like, I, I belong here. I'm not an alien. <laughs> but at the same time, I did not follow any of the, um, I didn't follow the rules to get here. And ultimately when it came down to a question of whether or not I was reinventing the wheel and followed my own path and got here anyway on the strength of my smarts and moxie, um, no, actually I got all that way. And then I like called a, I <laughs> called a relative who had, who had power. I could spin this a whole different way. Well, sure. I mean, there's a, there are a million ways to look at it, right? And to feel about it. But this was my, like, I, I walked into that college feeling like I had a debt to pay. And I wasn't sure who I owed the debt to. Do you feel like you paid it ever? Well, it's hard to know, I think, if, if any of us are reflecting on ourselves very much, it's not hard to find uh, the feeling that you have debts to pay, that people helped you or your world enabled you to accomplish things. I mean, one of the, one of the undergirding assumptions of examining unexamined privilege is that you recognize, Oh, you had help. It didn't feel like help. It was invisible to you, but you had advantages and advantages equal help. And so how do you repay? Do you have an obligation to repay those advantages? And if so, how and to whom you try to repay that in the, in the now by being a better person or by, by recognizing that you can help other people or you can step aside and make a little bit of room or, you know, there are a lot of ways that you can, you can try and repay that debt. But at that, at that time, 1992, when I was 23 years old, right. I felt that debt and didn't know exactly to whom I owed it. And there was an argument that could be made that I owed that debt to the world of white upper middle class art collectors. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Because they were the ones that actually got me into the school. And so when I started at the U, I, I quit drinking. I got a haircut. I moved from my 
flop house apartment with a bathroom down the hall to an apartment in the university wash uh, university district that had like built-in cabinets little leaded glass cabinets and had hardwood floors i mean the, my old place had hardwood floors too but like people had been skateboarding on them for 25 years <laughs> this, this was like a nice apartment that had and the apartment building had a manager right and i started to go to class and I swear to you, Dan, I was wearing like a sweater wrapped around my shoulders. Oh, right. like, like like a pink polo shirt. Yeah. And and I was like, I like I need to just own this. And I'm going to go to college and I'm going to get an intellectual degree. And then I'm probably going to be a lawyer and I'm going to do my part. Um, my, I had po- uh, progressive politics, but at the time there wasn't a, there wasn't necessarily any kind of uh, cognitive disconnect between being a preppy lawyer and having progressive politics and never examining your place in the world right. right that was the fashion at the time and had been for 250 years up until that point um those were the people that when you would go when you would be canvassing and you'd go to their house um and it would be a really nice house and they would be really beautiful people and have an awesome kitchen and they would invite you in and write a check for $50 to help you pass the clean air act. Right. And everybody would feel like this was a, this was the way that things got done. And this was, this was how, um, like the, uh, we were the good people. I was a good people cause I was going around collecting money for the clean air act and they were good people cause they gave us 50 bucks. And I'm, <laughs> I I met people like this all the way through college who would say, well, you know, I don't really want to go like do volunteer work. Now my plan is to get established in my career, make a bunch of money and then use that money to help people later on a real sort of common argument among middle-class leftists. Sure. I can do more good after I have established myself, because if I don't work hard to establish myself now, if I go uh, join the Peace Corps, I'm going to be handicapping myself in terms of my ability to really stay competitive. And if I don't get competitive, then I'm not going to make it as much money and then I'll have less money to give to the poor later. You'd see people just make that argument constantly. And believe it, you know. And that argument also people make about doing what they love. It's not even about helping other people. It's like, well, what I really want to do is this, but I'm going to wait until after I've had success in this career and Mm -hmm. then I will have the freedom to be able to do this thing that I love. Right. Rather than just like, this is the thing I love. This is what I'm going to do. Anyway, so for a year and a half, I walked around University of Washington trying to be a good upper middle class liberal college student. My grades were really good. I was really engaged in the student life. Still couldn't throw a football, but (laughs) I I got a girlfriend who was 
very successful in school. I was having an affair with my guidance counselor. It all felt, it all really? felt yeah, it all <laughs> felt very much like a <laughs> just um, a normal college experience. <laughs> just Same thing like, we all did. It's like Michael Douglas should should be walking around the campus. <laughs> sure. <laughs> We would like to thank our second sponsor. It's Away. These are the folks that make the perfect luggage. The perfect luggage. You know what? I just went up to New York City. And of course, I travel with my Away every time I get because it's got the built-in charger and you never know how long you're going to be sitting at an airport and you never know, which is basically what happened to me. Flights got delayed and, uh, and, and you sit there and you, you plug your phone in and it charges it while you're there with your, with your carry-on. And so here's something cool. While I'm sitting there on the plane, I noticed a woman who came to sit down next to me. She had an away carry-on bag and she took it and put it up in the overhead. And I said, oh, I noticed you have uh, an away carry-on there. And she says, oh yeah. She said, I travel every single week back and forth from Austin to New York. Every week. And she said, this has been the best. I'm not making this up. Like, this has really happened to me. She says, this has been the best bag. It's the only one that I've found uh, could could be reliable. And also, it's got the charger. I'm like, I have one too. I know. She's like, oh, cool. She says, I've got the big one and the small one. And that's what they do. They have multiple ones. They have different sizes. They get the carry-on, the bigger carry-on, the medium, and the large. Large, of course, is you know the extent for extended stays. They even have a kid's carry-on. For uh, for for your kids, get your kids their own carry on. That's what I did for my boy. He has his own now, and these things are great. Away bags and their accessories. These are a perfect gift. They have a lifetime guarantee. They have a hundred day trial, and there is a perfect size and color for everyone on your list this holiday season. The holidays are coming up. Why not give them something like this? Get rid of that crap carry on that you've been you know schlepping around for years. And check out Away. You can also get an Away gift card. If you can't make up your mind, you give them the gift card. Say, look, you've got this horrible carry-on. Get one of these. Pick your own. They're made with uh, premium German polycarbonate. It's very lightweight. It bends. It never breaks. They've got a patent-pending compression system built into it. They've got 360-degree spinner wheels. You must have the spinner wheels. You must have the spinner wheels. They've got a built-in TSA-approved combo lock on the top of the bag so it won't get uh you won't have anything stolen out of there but the TSA can get into there if they need to. And it even has a removable washable laundry bag that keeps your dirty clothes separate from your clean. Everything you need is built in. And you can charge your iPhone up to 5 times with the built-in charger. Like you're set. Trust me on this, you're set. Lifetime warranty, 100-day trial. Go take it out, travel with it. You don't like it within 100 days, send it back. No big deal. $20 off a suitcase. If you go to awaytravel.com slash roadwork and use a promo code roadwork during checkout, again, 20 bucks off a suitcase, awaytravel.com slash roadwork, promo code roadwork. Thank you, Away. But I also had all these friends in grunge that I knew from a couple of years of working downtown. And so I still had access. I could still go to any rock show in town for free. And periodically I would have friends over to my house, to my apartment who definitely walked into the apartment building like, whoa, where the fuck are we? Right. What is this place? Dude, look at you. You have crystal doorknobs. 
And I'd be like, I know, right? <laughs> Uh, and then very rarely I would be somewhere with my, with my preppy, um, college girlfriend and like some people coming down the street the other way with, um, leather jackets on and she would kind of, I mean, it's a, it's a stupid movie cliche, but she'd be like, you know, would kind of cower a little bit like here come these toughs or whatever. And then they would go whoa, what's up, Roderick? And we'd have one of those weird things on the street where they would pull on my pink sweater and say, what happened to you? Right. And I would say, nothing. It's just, I'm the same. I'm just like, this is my girlfriend and this is my pink sweater, whatever. Fuck you. <laughs> so I was slightly, I mean, I was slightly living in multiple worlds, which is a thing I've always done. But, But I really was trying to I mean, obviously trying to figure out what, what the, what the makeup of the world was and where, where my puzzle piece fit. It's not, it's not un, uncommon. Um, and I, th so all of a sudden now I would go to these parties at my uncle's house and I was at the university of Washington. Like I was no longer wearing logger boots. Right. And, and I felt, I think like, uh, at first that I would go to these parties and there would be some sort of, uh, hail fellow well met, right. Back padding and secret handshakes and stuff like, Oh good. We worried about you, but here Growing you are, up, here you are. You're fine. That's right. Now you've now, now you're, you're at the old club and, uh, come see me after you graduate. And I'll get you a job at the, at Warehouser. And there was a, there was an element of that. Certainly, if I had pursued it through college and had graduated and had gone to see my uncle or any one of a dozen of his friends and said, hey, how are you? You know, I'm graduated looking for a little bit of a looking for an opportunity that, that, that was available, right? I mean, that, that would have been, that was doable, but what there wasn't was any feeling of any additional feeling of welcome or belonging mm. because that's just not how that world operates at all that feeling of belonging is not something that they offer you out of generosity they don't go like hey you're in the club like that club is a a mean and guarded little compound and they they're all terrified that they're going to get they're going to lose the key to the club nobody ever feels secure there it's a terrible like wolf den. <laughs> right. They're all just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Basically, it's, you know, it's like uh, it, that waspy, um, culture of money and, and privilege is just a spiritually awful place to inhabit. 
um, because there's no, because of this, like not, not just because of this matrix of tiny rules that you can constantly be violating, but also the, all the things that those little tiny rules tie back to all the assumptions, all the presumptions, all of the, uh, all of the tiny little lies that support the whole system. I mean, every, every lie seems small there because they're so, they're just, they are, they're just such small little refusals to see is what a lot of them are. Just refusals to see the whole picture. Like uh, every, every photograph in their, in their memories, they have cropped out somebody or something. There's always someone in the background working at the stove that got cropped out of the picture. Right, right, right. And all those tiny little lies are what contribute to the self-image that that class has, that they are all Horatio Algers. They believe, each of them, that they are self-made and that their inheritances are not really uh, salient. I mean, you know, they inherited this money, sure, but then they took it and built this, all of this empire. And even the ones that haven't built an empire, they inherited that money, but they have culture and they understand how to do it. And they're one of the thousand points of light and they trickle that culture and that, um, that stuff down to everyone. And they make the world a better place. And that is a, a collective <clears throat> and mutually supporting delusion. And you, you know, you see it, obviously all of that is that those are all Donald Trump quotes, right? That he inherited his money and used it to make more money, but also used his used the power of his money or the, or his supposed money to recover from multiple bankruptcies and to make terrible deals. Um, like he had enough money and privilege that he couldn't fail even when he had disastrously failed. And Donald Trump doesn't even have class. You know what I mean? Like people that have that access and then also have class it's a whole other universe. Donald Trump is, is vulgar. Whatever his art collection is, it's just paintings of himself. <laughs> anyway, so for a year and a half, I basically carried a briefcase around. And <clears throat> wasn't sure how to carry myself, wasn't sure what my values were, wasn't sure how I could maintain these values and those values, was completely incapable of voluntarily not seeing things couldn't not see ended up being the, the person at those parties that was standing over by the wait station, talking to all the catering waiters who sometimes were people I knew from the town, but you know, the catering people don't want some young prince, some scion, to be standing over there talking to them and then 
and then taking a drink off their tray and being like, thanks a lot, you know, right. thanks, buddy. We're, we're, we're both in this together. Am I right? Anyway, I'm going to go stand over here, talk to this person. That's not a, that's not a good place to be either. You don't want to be that like snob that fails to see that they're also not hip punk preppy. And eventually <clears throat> the wheels just came off of it. And, and I think like a lot of people in that circle, the wheels came off of it in the form of, I just started drinking and doing drugs to the exclusion of all other things. I had enough of a spiritual wasteland where I felt like I don't belong anywhere and <clears throat> there's no fun to be had. Like this money isn't fun. These people aren't fun. They'll never be fun. There's no amount of access where you can go deeper and deeper into this world and, and eventually you have fun because to have fun there, you have to be blind and desensitized. Like George Walker Bush seems like he's having fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think he would be any fun to be around because his fun requires that he, you know, I think he's a smart, educated person. I think that, I think that you can't be George W. Bush and not be smart. That whole thing of like, he has bad syntax, so he's dumb. I think he's smart. He's got to be smart and interesting, but there, <clears throat> there's 89% of the, of the experience of the world that you can't talk to him about because he can't see it. He cannot maintain his his, um, the, his sandcastle of a universe if, if he is confronted with it. And so, yeah, so then I was, then I was just, uh, trying to drink myself away. And when I finally got, when I finally sobered up from that, I never again tried to join that world. I, I, I knew that I was exclusive of it. And I would go to those parties and I, and I had, I guess the, a little bit more confidence in the sense that I knew I wasn't, uh, I wasn't, trying to get anybody's approval anymore. And I think it looks, it looked then and it looks to other people like that is a kind of swagger. Um, but it didn't feel like swagger. It felt like for, I think for, for a, quite a while, it felt like defeat. Um, and then eventually as time wore on and I realized that I was able to live a life that made more sense and that there were ways to, for instance, go to the University of Washington and not be uh, buying into a thing that I didn't want membership in. Like I ended up being a student at the University of Washington from 1992 three, to 2015. 
That's quite a long uh, a long time to be in. It was in school. It was like is that how long I, it took you to get a degree, or you just continued getting taking more classes after you were graduated, or what? I continued to take more cl- classes after I had a lot more credits than I needed for a degree. Um, but I was I was really engaged there. I I, w- I felt like a member of my department. I had relationships with my guidance counselors. <laughs> well, not anymore. Uh, but with my, you know, with the director of the department and the, and the, it was a small enough department that I knew all the instructors and it was a department that felt like a community and it was one. And so, you know, even if I only took one class a year or two classes a year, I'd sign up and go, go to school for a quarter and get involved. It didn't mean that the other, that the rest of the year I wasn't still going to events of theirs. Eventually I, you know, I would, they'd ask me to host an event or speak at an event. Like I, I felt like a member of a, um, of a community there that was, that had a very special take. Um, and that was, was sort of the, a hotbed at the school of progressive politics and not sixties style progressive politics, but nineties and then two thousands style, um, you know, the, the, that period of, like increasing understanding of of all these matrices that tie the world together and rend it asunder. So getting into the university by by that exercise of my uh, divine right of kings over the years, at least at least the debt that I owed to the university itself in the form of um, any, any coloration to my presence there that felt undeserved or um, that I wasn't there on the strength of merit. I tried to erase by contributing to the college and being active in that intellectual community and being, um, you know, a, a, a not trying to just get in, get out, but wanting to be, wanting to be part of what I thought at least my corner of the university wanted, which was a, um, not a degree factory like a place, like a, like a civic place. And as far as like the, the debt I owe to the idea of a classless society, you know, that's a, that's a debt I think I'll wrestle with my whole life. And, and I expect anyone who has, I mean, anyone listening to this show has access Mm -hmm. 
and whether or not they they have completely confronted how much access they have and how much of that access is a product of forces that aren't just the 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 force of their own will and talent being expressed in the world but other forces how much they benefit from structures rather than just living in a world of of pure um like the the utilitarian idea that that each of us is a completely contained cat who walks by his wild loan and all things look alike to him or her or they. Well, finally, we have to say thank you to our friends over at Squarespace. I just visited them up in New York and they made uh, they had a little cafeteria thing and they said, help yourself to some lunch. I went in there and they had barbecue. They knew I was coming. I feel like they knew I was coming. They had uh, barbecue for the guy from Austin. It's how nice of them. But this is the kind of company they are. They're always thinking of everything. And that's what they've done with Squarespace. They help you turn your cool idea into a new website. You can showcase your work. You can have a blog. You can sell products and services. You can promote your physical or online business. You have an event coming up. Use it to publicize your event. You want a resume page? Put your resume up there. You name it. They have it. They even have a domain name registration thing built in now. You can go there and register a domain. And you don't even have to do the domain at Squarespace unless you want to. You should, but you don't have to. You can just go get a domain there. 200 extensions are supported there. Amazing 24-7 customer support. Nothing to upgrade or patch. or You don't have to worry about security. Built-in SEO. E-commerce, it's built into it. And beautiful templates made by world-class designers. You've got to check it out. Make this thing stand out. Make your website stand out with Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code ROADWORK and you will save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Squarespace.com code to use for 10% off is ROADWORK. Thank you, Squarespace. See, I think a lot of people listening to your story are going to think to themselves that, you know, I don't know, there's something to do with, I almost feel like you getting into the school that you really wanted to go into. I don't feel like you owed a debt. I don't really don't feel like you owed it. Maybe you owed a debt to your uncle for making the phone call, but I feel like you deserve to get in there, you know, and then you went there and you, you, you got good grades and you spent a long time at the university, you know, like they, you turned into a great student and then you went on and you did help people and you did those things, you know, like it was a good, you were a good person to go to that school. They should be proud that you went to that school. Oh, I think they absolutely should be proud I went to that school. So the fact that how how you jerks <laughs> how you got in is much less and the way I got into school was a joke by comparison. But if I had had an easier way to do it, if I had an uncle I could have called to just yeah, I mean why you use all the resources that you have available to you. The way, the way well, I the way I got in I took, uh, I, you know, I took the SAT and I got a thousand on the SAT mm-hmm. 
and it was like whatever the highest score you could get in English plus whatever like the lowest score you could get on the math. Oh, wow. Yeah. So like my English was, you know, I guess Eight, you could... 800. Yeah. My English was an 800 and my my math was like a two or 300. 200? I mean, maybe, wow, I got a, maybe I got an 1100 on that. Uh, maybe it was six. Was it 600? No, I think it was... was the big- I think you could get a... Was it a 1440 that you could get on that? On the SAT, oh, right, fourteen forty, something so like that, seven twenty, yeah, yeah, something. It, what my my English was basically perfect, and my math was whatever else it it was. I think I got an eleven hundred. Now that I it, I really think about it, it was an eleven hundred, which wasn't yeah. good enough to get in anywhere. And, and there are people listening to this show who aren't aware that the SAT scoring system changed at some point. Yeah, and that it was very different in the eighties than it was. Later. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um. Uh, so I, I took that test and obviously didn't do well. And my GPA was not great. Like I think depending on how you computed it, if you know, cause I was in a, the classes that came very easily to me, like English and science, I got straight A's and those I never had to try, but any other class where I had to try, I would get like a C in it cause I didn't like to try. I was yeah. not a very good student. And so my GPA, I mean, like, I guess it computed at like maybe a 3.1, you know, like it wasn't, it wasn't great. I was not ideal college material and my grandparents had done something. I don't know if they still do this kind of thing anymore, but I was on, this was in Florida, of course. And so I was, they had put me on the Florida prepaid tuition plan. So like in the, I guess the early seventies, they basically paid for my college at the early seventies rates. Mm-hmm. And I, I probably, they probably spent $10,000. I'm guessing on college for me. Maybe it was 15, maybe it was a little more, it, whatever it was, it was nowhere near what it would have cost to send me in the nineties, late eighties, early nineties. It would have been a completely different thing. But so I kind of knew that I kind of had to go to a Florida school because that was the only my grades and test stuff that I wasn't going to get any scholarship. And I also knew that I wasn't a good enough student to maintain whatever GPA I would have needed to maintain in college in order to keep a scholarship going. So my choices were a Florida school. And so I applied to a, a whole bunch of them. And the only one that accepted me based on my scores was uh, UCF, which is now they've got a great football program. They're a really great school for a bunch of things, including computer science. And they're, are they the biggest or one of the biggest schools in the country now? Very well-known school, very good reputation now. But when I went there, it was like a commuter college. It wasn't considered to be very good. There was no sports program whatsoever. Like it, it wasn't on anybody's map for anything, but it was far enough away from South Florida where my family was that they couldn't just show up. And it wasn't so far away that when I needed to come home to visit, it it would be like an all day epic drive or whatever, trying to get back there. But there were a couple of other schools that I had tried to get into also. And they, by the way, they didn't full on accept me. They were going to accept me on like a like a trend as a transient student. Uh, and, and that was like essentially like being on probation. Like you can come here, but you need to have such and such a GPA and you need to basically prove yourself or we, we won't be able to stay. 
And I didn't like that kind of pressure. That's not, I didn't like that. I didn't like any kind of pressure. So I, at the time, my major was going to be uh, RT, what, what used to be called RTV, radio and television, because I wanted to go into radio. And that was how I was accepted in, but it was on that transient basis. So I started thinking, well, what else can I do that would get me in like as just a straight up, just like regular student that would get me in. And so I knew how to play guitar and I was pretty good. And I'd been taking, um, my mom wouldn't pay for any guitar lessons that were like what I, the kind of guitar I wanted to play, which was rock and roll. I wanted to play, you know, Jimmy Page. I wanted to play Led Zeppelin. But she wouldn't pay for that, but she would pay for uh, classical guitar lessons, which is where you've got the nylon string and your left foot's up on the block. And you know what I'm saying? Like it's like very like classical, classical guitar. So I've been taking classical guitar lessons for a, a couple of years at this point. And I said, well, maybe they have like a, like nobody plays classical guitar. Like that's not, no one does that. So maybe they have like a music program there. And I could like get in under the guise of maybe being like a music major. And so I went, I, I, I took my classical guitar and I made a couple calls and I, I got like a audition with the teacher, with the, the guy who taught classical guitar at UCF. And I got in the car and I drove four hours up to Orlando and I went and sat down and he did an interview and then he had me like sight read something and play it for him. I was all right. And he's like, okay, yeah, I think you can come in here. It's going to be great. And so I was a music major for like, like, a, like a quarter. And as soon as I was established, I just changed my major back to RTV and, got, and it was done. And that was in. I was in. And I don't, I don't think I took one music class. Uh, so like getting in by any means necessary, I feel like it's all right. That's Sometimes you, you kind of got to game the system to get in somewhere. That's pretty sly. I mean, I was, you know, I think, I think I went in thinking that I would be a music major until I started to like really see what that was, that life was like. And it seemed like it would kind of suck. And so after a quarter of being a music major without even taking any classes, I mean, I still played guitar a lot, but I realized now that like, that's not for me. And then I was a radio TV major for a while and then realized that wasn't for me either. I changed my major a lot. But you you know, I got I got in. The point was I got in. And I was a good student. Is better better in college than I ever had been in high school. But I just, I think it's all right. I think what you did is okay. I don't think you were indebted to anybody. And I think if even if you were, which you you weren't, even if you were, I think you paid it back. I mean, don't you feel that like you've paid it back or do you still maybe feel bad about it somehow? Um, you know, I'm describing, I'm describing a side of my family, but there's a, there's another side, which is not rich. Um, they're still, they're still wasps, 
but they don't have the money for an art collection. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were leftists and the, and before even leftism, they were religious, uh, actors. And by that, I mean, there is a thread of, of, um, expectation that you be useful to your fellows in my, in my family. And in the 20th century that turned into leftist politics because that was what after world war two, that was the place where that energy was happening, helping people before world war one. Um, that energy of helping people was in Methodism or something, you know, it was much more a thing located in a religious tradition. So although I don't think anybody in going back in, in any of my, um, in any branch of my family was especially devout, Mm -hmm. they worked within religion Mm -hmm. to help. And my grandfather, my father's father was a minister and it was that kind of minister, the, you know, minister as civic leader. I think his politics were probably Republican, but he was a helper. And my dad was, and my mom was, and the expectation, my, the other expectation in growing up was that I would be useful. And that isn't just a thing that's in, in my education. I really do feel like that is, a a, um, it's a, a kind of trait. And uh, I've obviously, like, you can debate this around and around, but there are people who are born that can just throw a football. By the time they're three years old, they're already trying to throw a football, and they are great at throwing footballs. And there are people, I think, that are born that have an innate feeling that they need to be useful. Um, that they can't be content. And I mean, full stop, not that they can't be content with X or Y or Z, but that there is a, there's an intrinsic disconnect, discontentedness Mm -hmm. because there's always so much work to do. And when you have done one thing, there's, you know, you're, you're propelled on to, uh, to the next. And, and a lot of people like, Jimmy Carter, for instance, has this trait and thinks of it in a religious context and also in a political context, and he doesn't rest. There's so much work to do. I got a bad blend of it because it blended with another thing that I inherited, which is um, morbidity. Mm -hmm. And so that feeling of there always being more to do crossed with morbidity can be a little bit dark. Uh, but do I feel I have repaid my debt? No, I'll never feel that. I'll never feel that way. My debt is to humankind in a way. And I don't, and because of the morbidity, I do not feel moved to work for houses, uh, Habitat for Humanity, for instance. Right. 
I got a letter from a friend the other day asking whether or not I volunteer or, uh, you know, uh, volunteer to charities, give to charities. And it was a sincere question, kind of not, it wasn't an accusatory one. It was, you know, like, do you give to stuff? I mean, do you like volunteer? And, you know, and the answer on the one level is, yeah, constantly, right? I mean, I'm always doing, I'm, al- I'm always active. I'm always working on things. Right now I'm, I'm working with a, uh, a guy who came to me because of his podcast listenership, but he is a, he's an activist and an art, an artist and an art professor and we're trying to put together a plan here in Seattle to push for a safe consumption space for intravenous drug, drug users because there's like all the evidence in the world you need mm-hmm. to know that if you put a place like that in a city which is clean and well lit and staffed with a EMT there and some and clean bathrooms that you'll cut by a factor of 90% mm-hmm. the number of people that die of overdoses under a freeway bridge. And that ends up just from a cost benefit analysis, saving the city millions of dollars, let alone the like cutting death, right? Like, yeah. um, but but I have never felt that personal drive to go serve turkey dinner on Thanksgiving at the like the homeless shelter or something at the mission, yeah. right? And that feeling, and 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 I don't and I don't mean to be disparaging about that. I mean there are people that only do that once a year, but there are there are people and families I think who teach their kids to that part of their family dynamic is that they go down on the weekend and help the less fortunate. Um, I think religious people are much more. They have much better a much better sense of giving back. And also they have like systems that enable them to, um, to plug in to, you know, to, uh, charities and to opportunities. They feel they're, they're, they're moved to by their traditions. Mm-hmm. But I have never felt like my best use was as another set of hands. And do you feel beholden to like to, to help people or, or serve people or beholden to people in general? Yeah, I do. Um, and there are a lot of, there are a lot of jobs, uh, in the world. Right. And part of, Part of the job that I've that I've made through podcasting, which is a job that sort of didn't exist 
before mm-hmm. is, you know, we do entertainment podcasting that is meant to be fun and funny. But I've always tried to be perfectly candid. And that candor is a thing that for whatever reason I'm um, capable of. And I'm, you know, I'm not the, I'm not like crystal candor, mm-hmm. can, crystal, crystal candid, right? There's quite a bit of like humorous self mythologizing that I do. And there's a lot of, um, there are secret names, mm-hmm. secret handshakes. Right. But in general, I have felt that some of the greatest suffering in, in the larger world that I have access to. Some of the greatest suffering is the suffering that comes from feeling isolated and alone and unknown, unknowable, unloved. Right. right. And that a lot of that is unnecessary suffering because people's problems, although individual, are of a family. And if you can hear somebody talk about themselves and their problems and recognize in that a family relationship to your own struggles, the effect of that can be to feel less alone and less strange yeah. and less isolated and potentially more accessible to others and more available, even if you are mentally ill or suffering from some, some uh, variety of religious experience. And is that a kind of, uh, you know, it's been a longstanding joke that Merlin used to make that we're helping people. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like Merlin's moved similarly, right? His, his whole approach to his commu- the way that he communicates with people is he's trying to help. Yeah, I think and so. He's, he's trying to help by virtue of sharing his own experience of trying things that failed and then figuring out what worked. And it is a kind of ministry he's doing. Um, and he and I are very different. We've had very different experiences and we have very different ideas of what our responsibility to other people is and what our roles in the world are. But I have always been moved to be accessible to people and to be candid and to, and to think about stuff out loud where I don't have necessarily the best answer already mm-hmm. where I'm not preaching, but I'm saying, here's what I have in front of me and here's how I'm trying to think my way through it, you know, to make that, um, visible to people as a way of, of saying <clears throat> no one is there's no one that isn't also trying to do this. Like you're trying to do this and it, and it's a process that feels very lonely. And, um, and so, yeah, I, I do feel like I have a debt I cannot repay. I always felt that way. There are a thousand instances along the way where I have these sort of little concrete markers like, Oh, well, remember when you got into the university of Washington, cause you're a rich kid. Uh, a rich kid that didn't even have any money, but just rich in just like class rich. 
so don't get too big of a head of your, uh, don't, <laughs> don't get like ahead of yourself kid because like keep that in mind. Right. I mean, all those things are little checks on that tendency that I would naturally have to say to me, rally to me. Uh, but I don't think I'm, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of question right now, culturally, whether there's any use for a village elder in our culture, because the, um, assertion is that anyone like me who is in a position of offering a service as a village elder is tarnished by our complicity in a, in a system that promulgates inequality to such a degree that, that our, um, our worldview, our perspective, our offering is, is tainted beyond recovery. Um, but I don't have anything else to give. Like I'm, I would be useless swinging a hammer somewhere, not because I can't swing a hammer. I fucking can, but that's just not where I'm, I'm most useful. Right. So what's nice about the, the, what's nice about the realm of podcasting is that we put this out and it is available to whomever needs it, whoever wants it and needs it. It's not a thing that is, you're not forced to listen to it. Right. And if it's useful to people, we, we feel like we've done our work. And, um, and so, yeah, I'm always, I'm always repaying, trying to repay. And I think the best, the best I can do is, is, um, is to share. <laughs>